Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 15th of May, 2023, and this is episode 300. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk with Professor John Bourne, Dr Alex Mayhew and Dr Jonathan Boff about the current state of academic research into the Great War. All three scholars are present or former members of staff at the University of Birmingham. They all spoke to me from their respective homes over the interweb on Zoom. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. May you introduce yourselves and tell us how you became interested in the Great War and your particular um, area of interest. John, could we start with you as the most senior and distinguished academic amongst the the other two? Well, I'm certainly the most senior. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm now uh, happily retired, but um, um, and uh, vice president of the Western Friends Association. I've been doing quite a lot of uh, writing for them recently. Um, I did found the Centre for First World War Studies at University of Birmingham and the MA programme in First World War Studies, uh, which was a tremendous uh, success. And I'm very happy that Jonathan Boff has now revived it and and will take it on to greater and finer things, I'm, I'm sure. It depends what you mean by interested in the First World War. I became personally interested in it when I was about 13, when I accidentally stumbled across a copy of John Terrain's Douglas Haig, The Educated Soldier, which I took home and read, um, which immediately put me in the revisionist camp before I knew what the revisionists were revising. But I quickly learned what they were revising because the second book I read was Alan Clark's The Donkeys, which was the only book in my school library on the First World War. Um, but I didn't become professionally interested in the First World War until after, uh, note after, I'd written my first book on it. Um, my very uh, my very first book was on a completely different subject. And after it was published, my, my publisher, Christopher Wheeler, took me out for lunch in Soho. And he, uh, I remember AJP Taylor said to me once, the trouble with being a writer is that no sooner have you finished something than they say, what are you working on now? <laughs> So Christopher said, what are you working on now? And I said, well, I've always wanted to do a book on the First World War. And he said, well, there's loads of books on the First World War. And I said, yes, Christopher, this will be different. He said, what's different about it? And I said, it will be my book on the First World War. This was a Friday. So he took me, um, he went back to his office in Bloomsbury. I walked up Tottenham Court Road to Euston Station. By the, on the Saturday morning, he'd already written me a letter inviting me to put in a proposal so I wrote, I wrote the proposal over the weekend, which made me realise I'd had this book in me for some time. So I sent it off on the Monday, and on the Thursday, they offered me a contract. So I felt slightly obliged to write the book <laughs> after that. And of course, being an academic, when I published the book, which is what the um, publishers call a think piece, um, didn't have any original research in it, I thought, well, you know, perhaps it'd be more academic respectable if I actually did some research on the First World War. And um, the handicap in that, of course, is it's never sensible to change academic courses in midstream, though the positive side of it is you should always do what you're interested in. And I decided that this was what I was interested in. And that was what I wanted to do. The rest, as they say, is history. Jonathan, 
Gosh, well, that's an act to follow, isn't it? Or to try and follow. I wish I could uh, tell such an engaging story as that. Um, my my experience was slightly different. Um, I came to the First World War really because it seemed like a jolly good scrap. I don't mean the war itself. I mean the arguments that were going on between revisionists, counter-revisionists, revisionists of the revisionists, uh, and indeed the original sort of you know diehards. Uh, when when I came into when I was looking around for a subject to do for my MA dissertation uh, originally uh, at King's uh, about twenty years ago, and um, and it just struck me that this was a war that was so complicated and so open to so many different interpretations and to so many arguments that it had to be worth having a look at in a way. That at the time, I'm not sure I feel this quite so strongly now, but but I certainly feel perhaps or felt at the time that the, the Second World War was a bit more black and white, for instance. We know who the bad guys are. We know who the good guys are. Uh, we know what happened broadly. Um, and, and there's not an awful lot of story to tell. That's what I felt then. I don't, as I say, I don't feel quite the same today. But but certainly in comparison with the Napoleonic Wars, which is how I got into military history originally, was through sort of being fascinated by the Napoleonic conflict. I did feel that that perhaps had reached a sort of level of consensus 200 years after the event, that the, the First World War still had another 100 years of argument left in it. So um, that was that was kind of how I ended up gravitating towards it, and indeed to, to Birmingham, because of precisely because of the work that John and his colleagues have done uh, in not only in establishing the centre, but in the way it was set up as a, you know, really a beacon of, of community engagement and a lot of other things that I thought were really important about uh, about how we should teach history these days, and which I'm sure we'll talk about more later. Basta. Alexander, I'm, well, Alex, I should say, I was just looking at your your um, your Zoom profile. You you are you are probably the um, youngest of us, um, and um, you are the the third of the um, trinity of truth, which we'll be speaking today. <laughs> Um, I guess, yeah, so the, I don't want to repeat what I've said when I previously appeared on uh, your podcast, Tom. So I'll say that what led me to the First World War was a series of bad life decisions, uh, including becoming a travel agent after I finished my undergraduate degree and realizing that the world could really be much worse than academia. Uh, and uh, that actually led me to my PhD at the LSE. I think the truth of it, though, was I actually also, I think, came to broadly the history of warfare through the Napoleonic Wars and was always frustrated by the limited our limited ability as historians to really engage with what people were thinking at the time because of obvious limitations in terms of source material. And the First World War struck me as the ideal opportunity to study how individuals navigate the most traumatic of events. Uh, it's our first real opportunity to do so because of increased levels of literacy Etc. In the era before the First World War of, of of crisis, which is what I'm really interested in now, and what my my work's been interested in up to de- uh, up to this point. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Bad decisions and an interest in uh, in crisis. Well, we're going to discover a door or discover. I so I will start that question again. Now, before we consider the state of the the Great War as it currently stands, could we look at um, I suppose the last fifty years, maybe starting with the, with the sort of butchers and bunglers and how that has changed uh, over your professional lives? I suppose, John, this is probably most relevant for you because you probably knew some of these guys. Um, yes, and we we've only read their books. So, so, yeah. so tell us tell us about the state of historiography in the sixties and bring us up to the current day. 
Well, um, before I do that, we, we did have a chat about this, the three hours, a while back. And um, I thought there were three developments which were in train actually before 1970, um, which are very important in the longer term for the historiography of the First World War. The first, I think, was the establishment of war studies as a respectable academic discipline by Michael Howard at King's London and also by Arthur Marwick uh, at the Open University from a rather different angle. Um, I once did a PhD viva with Arthur and it was apparent that he knew absolutely nothing about the operational history of the war. <laughs> but um, so I think that was very important. Uh, one theme that's been around forever and was uh, reinforced during the period of the centenaries was um, why the war broke out. And the key book there, I think, is Fritz Fischer's Germany's War Aims in the First World War, which I think was published in 1961. Um, and that's never gone away. I mean, that the whole um, development of the historiography of, of, of why war broke out. Um, and it, in some ways, it's become more and more relevant when we're looking at, you know, crisis management. You know, there was a story that Kennedy wrote, read Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So if you want to talk about relevance later, I mean, I think that's still very relevant. The third thing I'd stress is the publication of Martin Middlebrooks, The First Day on the Somme in 1970. Now, that was the book that inspired me to go on my first battlefield tour in 1972. And he, he, he inspired several million other people as well. Now, that's been a, a whole theme in um, the British popular response to the First World War is, is battlefield tourism. And also, of course, Marty Middlebrook focused, I think, in some ways detrimentally, the whole of the British war experience on the 1st of July 1916, which provoked a whole series of books about various Powell's battalions on the 1st of July 1916. It was almost as though the war began and ended on the 1st of July 1916. Uh, the revisionism, when it came to sort of the operational history and the uh, leadership, particularly British military leadership, of course, um, goes down to John Terrain's Douglas Haig, the educated soldier. Um, and it took a long time, over 50 years since 1970, to um, slay the dragon, if the dragon has in fact been slain, about, you know, the generals were all stupid. They were, they were stupid because only stupid people joined the army in the first place. They were all cavalrymen, didn't understand technology, etc., etc. And in serious academic scholarship, I mean, that's all gone. And it's, I think, now achieved a level of sophistication and analysis, which you could only have uh, dreamed of about 1970. Does anybody else have a different perspective or something else to add on that, 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 that starter for 10? Can I just build on a little bit on, on the point that, that John made about Martin Middlebrook? You know, because I think that was part of a trend and it feeds in actually to, to, to what Alex was saying earlier about this being a sweet spot in terms of the sources and, and the ability to investigate the the experience of individuals in the First World War. Yeah. So, and, and, and there aren't very many conflicts where you have both the fictional representations of what it was like to be a soldier in the First World War from the Sassoons and the Graveses and all these sorts of characters who, who have their own agendas. And you also have this fantastic database, potentially, of memoirs and papers and oral recollections, in some cases, uh, of, of what it was really like for, for, for the average bloke, not for, 
you know, overeducated middle-class uh, writers. So, uh, 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 and that fitted into a sort of refocusing of history in the 1970s, I think, with Middlebrook, Lynn MacDonald a little bit later, um, uh, The Face of Battle, of course, you know, hugely influ- influential uh, book in the mid-1970s, the John Keegan book, which, of course, was largely based on, on Middlebrook, I'm uh, well, I'm not guessing. I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, and that, and that, if you like, reintroduced or changed the way that people did military history and allowed the human experience to be brought into the mainstream of military history, which until then had been an awful lot of lovely maps with boxes on and arrows and, and sort of most, mostly seen from the perspective of generals. And that sort of democratized it. And in fact, you know, something like the Western Front Association in itself, I think, is evidence of this kind of a movement in practice. Uh, and, and, and the Western Front Association, if you like, you know, is the sort of provisional wing of the who do you think you are generation right, when it comes to this, because yeah. it's people who have, uh, or many of the, the members of the WFA, I'm quite sure, have, you know, started, came into this by looking at, the, uh, the experiences of their grandfathers or great-grandfathers uh, on the Western Front as individuals. So that sort of, and I think that change and the way that that has enabled history and history writing and people who consume history to come closer together in new ways and to, to find new audiences for history, I think, is really, really, really uh, important. The second point I just make very quickly, and again, I suspect we may come back to this later, is you know, one thing that was very striking during the centenary, to me, uh, John's already mentioned how a lot of the arguments around the centenary came back to the origins of the First World War again. And, and in many senses, a lot of the argument, a lot of the discussion that went on between 2014 and 2018, I thought, was rehashing old arguments. But one thing really came through very strongly in this country. And I think, you know, we did a lot, did a lot, a lot of good work was done on it. And that was to look at the local history of communities in the UK and their experience of the of the First World War with with parishes and uh, boroughs and towns and villages up and down the country, uh, people you know enthusiasts in those places going off and finding out about the history of their own their own region. So again, it's got this sort of you know democratization makes it sound um, uh, a bit poncy, but um, that sort of uh, diversification, if you like, of his, of the way history is done as much as the way that it's consumed. And I think it has been really important and, and, and open new perspectives. Thank you. And I, I would add, I guess, on the flip side of the local focus is as somebody who came through uh, their PhD slightly more recently than um, our, our two other guests, uh, is that you can't really do the history of the First World War anymore without it being transnational comparative and possibly global um that doesn't mean you can't write histories of britain during the war but it means that those histories of britain have to be located in in a comparison with the other combatant states because one of the things i think has become increasingly evident is that national explanations of of the experience of the war fall down when you compare them with other human experiences alexander watson's work heather jones's work are great examples of how common the experience of the war was on both sides of the trenches or opposite sides of oceans. And I think that's something that people who are grappling with the war now need to need to embrace. And in fact, it's at the core of uh, the First World Masters at, at Birmingham, where we have the local and the global 
as two key components of the the program that we offer now. I suppose moving on onto the sort of the, the how effective the the revisionist movement's been. Is there any scholarship from the I suppose the nineteen seventies that still has stood the test of time? I know this question was about how the the original hist- historiography stood up, but generally, I think we probably would agree it's not uh, as effective as maybe um, it it has been. <laughs> Sorry, it's got lost in that question. Mm. John. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I think I agree very much with what Alex just said about uh, transnational. John Terrain always said there's only two things missing from most British accounts of the war. That was the French and the Germans, um, to which he might have added the Russians. And I think the Russians are still a big gap in our historical understanding of the First World War. So... um, but the operational history in you know the revisionist trend was uh, dominated for quite a long time by this concept of the learning curve which was really a metaphor invented in a pub near the imperial war museum by peter simpkins and friends and uh, it, uh, for for a short time i think it, it achieved a kind of um uh, status that, it, that peter never wanted it to have but in the longer term, I think it's been very beneficial because um, we've now identified learning curves um, and we've looked at aspects key to the operational history of the war, which have been you know, traditionally underwritten, like logistics and signalling and um, that kind of thing, that e- each of these elements that goes to make an effective military force had their own learning curves. Um, and there wasn't one general learning curve. Um I agree very much with what Jonathan said about every man at war. I mean, I think that's been a, an absolutely positive um, uh, development. Um, and one of the thing, one of the things that's made the operational history possible, of course, is the, the greater availability of uh, primary materials in Britain, which only really became available from the mid nineteen sixties. When Jonathan was talking about the democratization of the war, and I don't think that is too poncy an expression. Um, one of the things that's made that possible is the internet. Because it's so much easier now through all those genealogical websites, which I use myself a lot, um, to find out what people were doing and where they were doing it. Um, and I think it ties in with another thing which has developed certainly after the 1970s, which is remembrance. The whole uh, way in which people dealt with the, the unprecedented scale and casualties of the First World War with the work of Jay Winter and others. But there's been a lot of very good work done by local people on on local war memorials, um, you know, and and also by, you know, serious academic historians like Mark Connolly and so on. Um, So but the transnational, I think that that badly needed to be done. And we've seen important changes there, I think. I mean, uh, with the work that's been done on France by Elizabeth Greenhalge, reminding us that it was actually a coalition war. and also the way in which other parts of the British Empire have come on stream, you know, with major significant work in, in Australia, Canada, and eventually even in the United States. I mean, Terrain used to say that as far as the Americans were concerned, First World War was a, quote, non-event, unquote. But I don't think that's any more the case. Uh, I think a key moment was when the Liberty Museum in Kansas City was renamed the National Museum of First World War in the, in the United States. And um, all this has been, you know, uh, tremendous changes. Now, all this is contested ground. You know, it's not as though there's a, a canonical 
explanation of all these areas has come about. It hasn't. Um, but the as people contest, uh, it really profoundly changes our understanding uh, of the First World War in all its many aspects. I agreed with what Alex said. I mean, the, the, to me, the First World War is interesting because it is global, but it's also local. It's national, but it's also international and transnational. And this is why I think it will never be irrelevant uh, for all those reasons, because you, you can you can get into it from so many different angles and perspectives, uh, all of which I think have been significantly changed over time and for the better over the last 50 or 60 years. So move, does, anybody, sorry, does anybody else have anything else to add? Yeah, I was just well, going to... Oh, sorry. Well, nice. Yeah, I was just going to add to um, to the points that, that John was making, uh, which I guess one of the things we forget when we're operating in our, our silos within history is that our topics are also affected by broader turns. And I'm using the, the term turn intentionally, even though I think it's a slightly problematic one, turns within our field. And so I think going back to your question about what's useful about the, the histories of the 60s or the 70s, I think they set the tone for the things that came later. So it's still worth going back to them and thinking about what they can tell us, but problematizing them and accepting that those perspectives have been changed and morphed over time. And I, I think it's worth highlighting a couple of other things that come from the more recent changes in history, more broadly as a discipline. One other effect of the global isn't just the comparisons that we can make between Britain's national story and that of other countries. It's also that it reminds us it was it was a, a war of empires as well as a war of nations. And actually that that underpins much of what happens, the way the war is conducted, the, the war aims throughout the conflict and how those are adjusted. And also ultimately how the war is fought. Uh, Britain would have really suffered if it hadn't had the ability to draw manpower um, and exploit manpower, we should say, from across the globe. And I think it's also worth noting as well that one of the other features of modern historiography of the war is an expansion of our temporal framework as well as our spatial one. So a lot of historians would now study the war as the greater war, right, from, from 1912 potentially or even earlier through to 1923. Um, and I think that's really important to remember because the war doesn't end for people uh, intellectually or in terms of their mentalities on the 11th of November 1918. Many people experience huge amounts of violence across Europe afterwards, but even Britons are struggling to come to terms with it. And if we include Ireland in that story, it becomes a longer story of violence and political upheaval than one that we would otherwise study. And I'd mention one other bit of history, which I think is really interesting and quite innovative and is coming to the fore, which is the environmental history of the First World War. And the way that not only the environment was changed and shaped by the conflict across the globe, but also the way that individuals were shaped and changed by the environments in which they fought. And I would really recommend people go and read up on the environmental history because it's really genuinely fascinating. So, what, just, sorry, uh, sorry, Jonathan. I was just going to actually come up with a book that is still directly relevant to the first to the historical of the First World War, which then makes a broader a broader point. And that's James Joel's work on the mentalities of the uh, of, of the decision makers um, uh, around the world that contributed to the, to the origins of the First World War, which I think is 1969. So it just creeps in. Um, but it, it, but that's I think illustrates the fact that that actually the paradigms that people were talking about in the 1960s and 1970s still dominate most of the debates that we are having today. 
about the First World War. Now, there are exceptions, the global stuff that Alex was just talking about, the cultural stuff, new interest in race and environment and, and these sorts of questions uh, that, are, that are, people are thinking about increasingly now. But nonetheless, if you, if, you, if you look at the history of the First World War, it's very hard to do so without, when it comes to the origins, for instance, thinking about Fritz Fischer. You, you have to engage with that. Uh, if you think about um, the conduct of the war, well, the uh, generalship and the and the learning curve uh, again would be another you know, lasting paradigm. I would suggest um, in France, you know, a very long-lasting um, theme has been the the extent to which soldiers were compelled to fight or fought voluntarily. Uh, that seems to me to be another question that never goes away. Uh, frankly, uh, the impact of nationalism, particularly on places like Austria-Hungary um, and uh, in Eastern Europe, again, another one. And then the last is one which I would argue goes back to, well, at least 1919, if not perhaps even earlier, which is the whole economic consequences of the peace uh, and Versailles. Uh, and again, and in fact, still, you know, Margaret Macmillan's book, The Peacemakers, is a brilliant book. Uh, which doesn't really, to my mind, say much that isn't already in Keynes and some of the other stuff that came out uh, in the immediate aftermath of the war. So some of these paradigms that were established 50 years ago, I think we are still, I hesitate to say locked within, uh, but I don't think we have yet found, or rather the attempts to find new ways of looking at the war have tended to, to go outside those paradigms and find new problems to deal with rather than uh, changing those paradigms. Let's put it like that. I suppose what, one question I would think, what about the role of, I suppose, the historiography of, of the Great War represents more the time it was written rather than the actual conflict itself? And one that, you know, looking at the 60s and the parallels with Vietnam and things like that, and maybe when we look at today and the situation in Ukraine, discuss. Well, I think that's, that's always true, isn't it? I mean, um, there is a sense in which historians are always writing the history of their own times as well as the history of the past times that they're writing about. Um, but I don't think you can make a, you know, a mechanistic uh, explanation and say, well, you know, people were writing this way because of X. Um, it's also driven, it's driven by other things, I think, um, not least the, the greater availability of um, archival material. I think, you know, if, if you look at academic work, people need to go into archives to get their PhDs and those archives need to be available. And in some respects, they still aren't. I mean, I don't know how easy it is. Well, probably not at all at the moment to get into Russian archives. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, for a long time, uh, it wasn't possible to do much on the German army because, the, you know, the key materials were in East Germany. Um, it was only after the reunification of Germany. So it's a way in which global events, geopolitical events, can actually make it possible to do history in a different way, apart from all the things we've already discussed, all of which I'm... I agree with um, cultural um, shifts, uh, which have nothing to do with the war itself. Um, I think have influenced um, the way in which the historiography has changed over time, and this, from what Alex said, um, is clearly still uh, affecting it. Um, I mean, what I know about the environmentalism of the First World War could be written on the back of a stamp. So um, this is clearly a lacuna that I need to address. <laughs> um, I don't know anything about that at all. Um, but obviously, when you get a subject like environmentalism, which is so sort of central to, you know, 
cultural life now. It's uh, you, you can't separate the First World War out of it. Uh, it's bound to be affected by it. Though I didn't know it had been until Alex told me. <laughs> I think if you look at if we look at this one specific example, the learning curve. You know, I, I I would still like to see a proper academic analysis of the origins of the learning curve. I know about the pub behind the Imperial War Museum and uh, uh, and so on, but um, but I've always wondered to what extent that is tied up or the the emergence of the learning curve approach and and, and the rejection of the Haig was stupid and all the generals were bunglers. Uh, the sort of, and the sort of class warfare that often went along with that. The extent to which that that movement, starting in the 80s, is is born out of the challenge of Corelli Barnett uh, and the uh, Mrs Thatcher's determination to stop talking down Britain and start sort of talking her up and uh, the Falklands and all this kind of stuff. And I do also then wonder, and I'm just throwing this out as as a question, really, whether the the the, the sort of the moderate revisionists of the revisionists, of which I probably count myself as one, you know, to what extent we were influenced by the failure of uh, the failures in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, for example, and, and our own experience uh, in some cases of dealing with militaries that, I'm trying to think how to put this nicely, um, <laughs> sometimes struggled with adaptation in contact, shall we say. Uh, I think would be the, probably the, the best way I could I could put it, and 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 and, and that giving us a deeper understanding actually of the difficulties of that adaptation on one hand, but equally of the you know persistent ability of the British Army to choose some pretty stupid people and put them in positions of authority. <laughs> I wonder if that also speaks to the way that the historiography around the origins of the war has transformed over time, because. David Stevenson has pointed to the fact that we've almost returned full circle to the ideas that informed understandings of the causes of the war in the post-war period. And the interesting thing there, right, is that you have an international scene which is uncertain, uh, which is chaotic. And we get the ideas of a pariah state that come in after the Second World War when we have a seemingly, albeit bipolar, international order, but one that seems quite structured and easy to understand from the perspective of international theorists. Yet we've returned now to a, a pretty chaotic international order again. And I wonder if the idea of uh, mutual failure, mutual misunderstanding is something that appeals to us now, like it did to people of the 1920s, but kind of disappeared post Second World War when everything seemed to, to have a slightly more rational structure to it. And I do think there's something there. And the history of, historically, the war more generally, I think, seems to operate in circles. Uh, you mentioned going back to um Keynes and it seems like we're going back to a lot of the, the theorists post-war and it's important to remember some of them had more access to resources and source material than many historians that were writing in the in the 60s did um in fact they 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 probably had just as much as availability if not the internet um as as we do today so perhaps we should be listening to the post-war theorists post-first world War theorists more than we than we have in the past I think one of the things that drove the learning curve, as, as I understand it, um, was there's a statement by AJP Taylor when he said the only thing the British Army learned in the First World War was how to repeat its mistakes on an ever bigger scale. And I think the people who were, you know, associated with the the birth of the learning curve were sitting on all those um, 
documents in the Imperial War Museum, you know, SS-143, SS, et cetera, et cetera. And they thought, hey, half a minute, Kaiser, you know, clearly they were trying to do things differently. Um, they may not have been successful. It may have been experimental and experiments may have failed. But the idea that they weren't trying to improve, I think, was one of the things that, that drove it. Um, I don't see a right wing agenda amongst these guys, most of me, most of whom I know quite well, and most of whom, if not all of them, are to the left of centre. So if we've exhausted the past, let's come to the present. So what, what are the hot topics at the moment that uh, people are doing and who are the historians who, in your opinion, are worth looking out for? Well, we had a discussion of this a few weeks ago and I, I, I said, uh, far from being a rising star, I was more of a setting sun. So I think that um, this is really down down to the other two um, who will know what's going on on the cutting cutting edge. I mean, there are quite a lot of historians, um, you know, I've read in recent times whose work is very impressive, um, particularly uh, there's quite a lot of very good work done in operational history in Australia and Canada um, and indeed in the United States. Uh, Alex Watson's work um, is very impressive. And if you read that, I think it it flags up the fact that, you know, we haven't got a book like this about Russia um, for whatever reason, and uh, we really need one. Um, the other area where things have come on stream, which I think have affected the way we think about the war, is Turkey and the Ottoman Empire. And I agree very much with what Alex said about, you know, the war didn't really end in 1918. It certainly goes on as far as 1923. Um so all all these areas, are, you know, I've learned a lot. But as to who are, you know, the uh, people coming out of the uh, academies in a football sense, you know, and about to hit the first team <laughs> and, uh, and and take it from there, I, I, I really don't know because I'm, I'm, I'm too far out of touch with what's, you know, going on at the postgraduate. I mean, what I would say is if you want to look at the the up-and-coming historians of the First World War, one place to, to look for a list of those people is uh, the Historial de la Grande Guerre's annual awards. Uh, they often are highlighting the, the really cutting-edge research being done by PhD students, sometimes early career researchers, almost always PhD students, I think. And I think it's interesting that you pick up on Russia because there are a couple of historians of, of my generation, or maybe... Am I now past the, the generation of postgraduate? I don't know. So maybe the generation below me um, doing really interesting work on Russia as part of the coalition in particular. So Gwendol uh, Pigas at UCD and Sevilla Sevilla Anisimova, uh, who I think you've had on this podcast, is also doing really interesting work on Russia. Don't ask me how they've got access to archives. Uh, I think that's for them to answer maybe in another podcast with Tom. I also think in terms of some of the the, the transnational histories that are being done, uh, Claire Mollen, um, who's written really interesting work on Austria-Hungary um, and was part of Hunger Draws the Map with Mary Cox. They are two people to watch out for whose research I, I find genuinely fascinating. In terms of thinking globally, I think Anna Maguire's work is, is really brilliant, looking at contact zones in the British Empire and how networks were created by the war and you saw you, you saw relationships being built out of this so i would i would have a look at her work if you if you're interested in that extending the war in terms of the temporal space uh beyond 
1918. I think uh, Michael Robinson, who looks at veterans' rights, is a really interesting historian, as is Julie Powell, um, who's looked again at uh, disability post-war, um, both in Britain and the United States, and maybe France as well. Uh, I also know that you, you've had Neve Gallagher on your podcast, Tom, whose work is really brilliant in, in slightly changing our perspective on Ireland's war and drawing it into um, into the, the broader history of the conflict. So I could go on and on, probably, uh, but those would be my, my highlights uh, for rising stars in the field that people should be paying attention to, whose work is really pushing the history of the First World War forward. And go and have a look at the Historial, because they'll give you some more ideas, I think. I'm just going to mention three names, because, because two of them can't, and the third one's too polite to. Uh, and uh, I think uh, Amy Fox, many of WFA members will know well, um, and I am biased, by the way. Uh, she was a PhD student of mine, but uh, I think I she has. She's, she's, indeed, uh, and you know she's doing very interesting work on on women during the First World War, which I think will be revelatory when it comes out. Uh, another fellow called David Morgan Owen is re-examining the strategy, British strategy during the First World War, which is it's a, it's a funny subject. I think people have struggled um, with it recently. People haven't, I don't think people have managed to sort of put it together. I think he's going to do that. And the third one is a fellow called Alex Mayhew, who um, uh, I think is a very bright uh, prospect and we can expect very great things from him. No pressure, Alex. Lots of pressure, brackets. Alex leaves the chat. <laughs> Actually, I, I do have to say that I, all, all three of you have been on the podcast three times and this is your third time. So um, everybody, Alex, Alex is one of the rising stars. Um, um is, is leading the way on that. So we've talked about what's been covered, but what isn't being covered? What gaps do we still need to look at in terms of, of the First World War? Well, I'm I think there's said... some... Can I... Sorry, John, after you. No, it's all right, Jonathan, you go first. Well, I, I, I think John is going to have more structured ideas about this than I do. But but I think there are there are two or three areas that, that, um, that one can have a look at. I think, first of all, the first is that there's still more to do on race. Uh, a lot more to on race. I think our, our understanding of the experience of Indian soldiers still needs a lot of um, expansion, for instance. Uh, but there are other communities one could say the same thing about. Not always easy to access, of course, from a records point of view, but, but uh, you know, important work that needs to be done, I think. Um, the second one is, is that I think there are, there are questions that we haven't asked yet about the first of the First World War. So, for example, uh, I think Alex and I were talking about this the other day. You, you can see this as a data revolution. You know, the the idea that the First World War uh, popularizes and introduces new ways of manipulating large amounts of data, I think, makes extremely good sense in some ways. No one's really looked at it in any kind of a systematic fashion. Uh, but I think there's there's a lot to be said for that. The use of card indexes, for instance, taken from the Prudential and, and so on and so forth. The, the War Trade Intelligence Department, which had a, a, a war, a, a card index of a, of a million the million cards in it that they used to uh, coordinate the blockade, um, you know, which John Ferris says was the most effective uh, intelligence analysis department in Britain in the 20th century, which is pr pretty high uh, praise from the official historian of GCHQ. And then I think, and this is going to sound a bit airy-fairy, but I think there, there's, there, there, there are new ways of looking at the world that start to come in uh, as well. And so, and I'm just thinking particularly about 
about space. And suddenly with the First World War, you have the idea where you have people able to see things in three dimensions in a way that they've never really been able to see the world apart from from the top of the nearest hill or, or, or the spire of a church before. And all of a sudden you've got photographs uh, of the, taken from aeroplanes uh, uh, of the war. And it sort of makes, I, I, I don't know, I'm not an aestheticist, if that's a word, but, but I, I thought that kind of change of perspective must make a very big difference to the way that uh, people, some pretty fundamental ideas about how we change, about how we think about the world. The same, I think, goes to some extent for time, which I know has had a little bit more academic uh, interest on it. But but the way that one thinks of time and uses time uh, changes as a result. So what I'm, I suppose, trying to say is that there are some rather airy-fairy, hard to tie down, but potentially quite significant changes going on here and the last of which i'll just finish with this one is that there's something that changes between the first world war and the second world war which is hugely important and it's very hard to explain why it changes i think uh and that is the whole of the first world war in a sense is being fought to restore the world to the way it was before 1914 and the second world war is not like that no one thinks they're going to go back to how it was before 1939. 1945, when they get there, is going to be radically different and better. That's the way they think about it. So that sort of uh, change in, in mindset about whether we want to go back to the past or forwards into the future, I think is just fascinating because it's so fundamental to almost everything that human beings do. Uh, and, and, it, and it changes, as I say, for these some of them fairly obvious, but some of them, I think, quite complicated reasons. Sorry, long answer. But a good answer. I mean, I, I, I thought that, that, that that's absolutely spot on. Um, I've been thinking about the data revolution myself recently because I'm a sort of data person. Um, but if you start examining the actual military careers of people very low down the food chain, as I have in recent times, the whole way in which their experience of the war, um, they were processed through the war, from when they joined up to when they were demobbed or when they were died, is an extraordinary administrative effort, uh, which is, you know, barely understood. I think one of the few people who seemed to understand it at the time was Haig, because he'd make his annual pilgrimage to the third echelon base depot on Rouen to see how the card indexes were getting on. Um, I think that that you know that is really significant because we live in a very much in a data-driven world. Um, in which acquiring data is itself become extremely significant. Um, less, um, more practically, I think one of the big changes for me from when I first started doing work on the First World War is the way in which we filled in certain gaps on the British Army. I mean, there was virtually nothing written on 1915 when I started out, and Gary Sheffield described it as the black hole of First World War scholarship. Well, that's been filled in because we have endless books on 1916, but now we have good books on 1917, um, Nick Lloyd, uh, Bryn Hammond uh, on Cambrai. We have Jonathan's outstanding book on, on The Hundred Days. Um, there was nothing written on The Hundred Days when I started out. Um but we still have a gap, I think, and that's the German Spring Offensive from a British perspective. There are good books on it from um, the German perspective and uh, Elizabeth Greenhalgh's on the coalition aspects of it. But the actual military history of the German Spring Offensive, the best book on it from a British perspective is still the official history 
and we got nothing even the equivalent of Dave Zabecki's book on you know on the Germans so I think that's a uh, that's a big gap of a more traditional kind um but I, I think the future is probably with um what Jonathan's just said, because all those areas are hairy fairy, but they're also fairly profound as well. Not only about the First World War, but about about the way we we perceive our own reality. I th- I, I agree with everything that's been said, um, particularly because I'm interested in the airy fairy idea of time as well. Uh, but I think in terms of less airy fairy and more concrete topics, at least deserving of more attention, if they've had any at all. I would say that I've already mentioned the environmental histories of the war, and I think there's much more to be done around that. Uh, equally, I think that we still have huge gaps in our knowledge of how the war affected particular parts of the world. I think our knowledge of African theatres is better than it was before, but has much more work to be done. Equally, I know there's some really interesting work on China during the Great War, but there's really interesting work to be done on that too. Uh, I would also say that Jonathan's absolutely right that we we have much more still to do on on race and the racial dimensions of the conflict, including things like anti-colonial campaigns and movements that occurred during the war and spread after the war. But I also think that there's still a real gap in our understanding. And this comes in part from the source material of of the working class experience of the war across Europe. Uh, And I'm including within that, broadly speaking, peasant classes that still existed in particular parts of of Europe and across the world. Because I think our our picture of the war is still very much one uh, that's at least filtered by, if not entirely informed by, the words of educated middle class and upper class members of the societies that we're studying. I also think there's space to question one of the big themes in First of all, history and history of the late 19th and early 20th century, which is what does what does nationalism really mean beyond the people to whom those abstractions are part and parcel of their their academic pursuits? I personally don't think that nationalism is as useful a category of analysis for normal people uh, during 1914, 1918 or 1912, 23, um, or perhaps in the latter stage it is, as has previously been been proposed by many historians. I think there's still a lot to be done on life behind the lines and what the war was like for people that weren't at the sharp end of the conflict. And there are some early career researchers doing work on things like the YMCA um, or the Army Service Corps, which I think will offer really interesting pictures of what it was like not to be a a frontline troop. This is a personal interest, but I think that there's some interesting work on the the life of, of sailors, but... I'd really like to see a work on the merchant navy and what it was like to be a merchant seaman during the war, because it's a fundamental part of the war effort. Um, and often they're, they're characterised in memorials, for instance, the one instance, the one near um, near the Tower of London is as service people, but a different kind of service person. And I'd like to see more on that, in part because my one human connection to the war is a, a great granddad that was a, a merchant seaman and was sunk twice uh, by two separate U-boats. I have his diaries. They're quite interesting. And then I'm, I'm going to finish on something that Jonathan should have mentioned. But again, he said I was too polite to mention myself, but he's too polite to mention something that links to his his current work, which is the economic history of the war, which yeah. I think really does deserve and need more attention because economics is fundamental to total war. And I think we we have a still too limited perspective on how significant it was, possibly in part because a lot of historians are quantitatively uh 
ineffective, shall we say, and I include myself in that. Uh, but Jonathan's background, I think, makes him possibly one of the other people to do that study. Uh, but I'll leave him to talk about that if he wants to. I suppose from my own perspective, and maybe this is connected with Alex, I think one of the first areas I've noticed where there's a great absence is on the NCO in the British Army. I know of no PhD which looks at this in the same way that Gary's PhD looks at the officer class. And I suppose the second area, which which is obviously my sort of um, hobby horse and, and, um, and part-time interest, is on motivation and actually looking at holistic views of motivation, you know, across unit cohesion and nationalism, what it want of want a better word, and how that shaped and impacted on the 100 days in combat effectiveness. Because I think that is still lacking. Now, I could be wrong, but those, those are sort of my, my two pennies worth. So... We move on to how, so how do we teach this history in, in a modern setting? How do you at Birmingham actually translate what all this historiography into actually an undergraduate programme? And, and why is it still relevant today? Well, I've been have a first crack at this, I suppose. Uh, I mean, we have a, we have a, a series at Birmingham of um, undergraduate modules that address the First World War in different aspects. Alex has got one on micro histories of the First World War. We have a special subject on uh, sort of the conduct of the First World War, uh, for instance. Uh, I have a special subject sometimes on British strategy from sort of Salisbury through to Locarno. Um, uh, and, and then we have a, a, a variety of, of other ones. Another, we have another one which looks at it in context of, it's called Pandora's Box, you know, opening Pandora's Box with the First World War and then how it resolves itself into the end of the Second World War. Um <clears throat> Uh, and, and we find, frankly, that demand for these courses is extremely high and reassuringly high. Mm -hmm. And and part of it is exactly, as you say, uh, contemporary relevant. You only have to turn on the news at the moment. And the first thing you see is Quentin Somerville uh, outside Bakhmut uh, uh, under Russian fire. Um, and, uh, and that whole conflict, at least over the winter, has been portrayed in terms of you know, this is this is this. We're heading back to World War One. How can we possibly avoid that? Is the implicit question, isn't it? Um, rightly or wrongly, and so uh, that is driving uh, certainly undergraduates. I think uh, to 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 come back and have a look at this this war. The other the other sort of leg of this uh, at a teaching level rather than a research level. Uh, is the Masters in First World War Studies, which we have restarted uh, uh, at the National Army Museum. Um, so, so, so students go to the National Army Museum in London and are taught, literally surrounded by the objects that they're learning about. You, know, you can be talking about Lawrence in the T.E. Lawrence in the morning and go and see his his robes at lunchtime. Um, for instance, and that's very powerful. And of course, they've got very good archives there and have been very supportive of the course. So um, uh, that's inevitably a slightly different demographic from, from the undergraduates. And I think in many cases of our students, they are more like like many members of the WFA, people who have had a long, a long interest in the First World War. And they come to us, not because they don't already know a lot about the First World War, because in many cases, they, do, they know a huge amount about the First World War. Uh, but for to help for us to help them put their specific interest in this battalion or great granddad or whatever it happens to be in some broader context and to start to see some of the patterns that fit together here and that's really what Alex Alex and my job is to take that enthusiasm 
and that specific knowledge of particular bits of the First World War, and then between the class as a whole, help them all, pull them all together into new and exciting ways uh, for them to think about think them to think about it. And certainly the experience we've had so far, and Alex, I'm sure we'll talk about more about this in a second, has been that um, every single one of our students, we started in September, it's now March, uh, so we've been going for about six months. Every single one of them, I think, would say that they think completely differently about the First World War than they did six months ago, which is, as so far as I'm concerned, mission accomplished. Yeah, just picking up on that, I think that the... The way to teach the First World War is by starting with the broadest possible perspective, because you can only really understand what's going on at the local level, which Jonathan mentioned earlier, if you understand the global patterns and the global events, because ultimately they have a huge impact on the way that people experience their local lives, whether or not they're aware of it. So I think the important thing that we do on the Masters, but also that Birmingham do in terms of the structure of the, the first of all focused or first or adjacent courses is you start with a transnational perspective and then you slowly zoom in. Right? So the globe and the local are two parts of the same coin, but you need to be able to see it in its its grandest, uh, largest scale to be able to understand what's going on at the at the micro level, uh, which is what I'm particularly interested in. And so that's really what underpins our approach to the to the masters is a global war experienced on a local level. And it's integrated to each of the programs that we try and deliver to the students across the two years of the masters. John, any reflections? My experience of teaching the um, MA at Birmingham and my time and of teaching it more recently at Wolverhampton is in some sense is the opposite of what Alex just said, because people start with the local perspective. You know, whenever I... Uh, had the inaugural meeting of the MA each session, I would ask them how they got interested in the First World War. And the number who got interested in it for family reasons, they had a grandfather or whatever um, who fought in the war, or they were been impressed by a local war memorial. And part of their learning curve um, is recognising they were, they were part of a you know, this was this experience that they wanted to know more about at the local and personal family level, you know, had had all these global and transnational dimensions. So when Jonathan said, you know, by the time they're six months into it, the whole view of First World War has been transformed, was, was my experience both at Birmingham uh, and at Wolverhampton. And it was helped, I fact, by the fact that, um, I mean, I love undergraduates, you know, I spent a long time teaching them. Um but the people who did the MA at Birmingham and in Wolverhampton were mostly people of more mature years, not, not all of them, but most of them. And they brought a, a rich variety of personal experience. I mean, the number of um, I was once held to task by the University of Birmingham for teaching on a Saturday. Uh, and they said, do you realize, you know, you haven't got any medical cover? Well, as far as I was concerned, there wasn't any medical cover in the week at Birmingham. As Gary Sheffield once famously um, found out when he got his finger trapped in a door. Um, so I pointed out that we did actually have three distinguished surgeons on the course and someone who founded his own um, medical training uh, company. And so you're dealing with that kind of level, you know. Um, and the great thing about teaching at the university as it's not all top down you know the, the learned professor comes down with tablets of stone and said you know this is the truth 
Um, it, it shouldn't be like that. It should be an interaction. It very much is at the MA level because all these people, you know, have life experiences which are different uh, and which they which they can bring to it. And it was, uh, I think, it was the most fulfilling um, teaching uh, that I that I've ever been involved in. And you will be aware this week that Rob Thompson died on on Monday, and I've been deluged with emails from people who uh, were on the MA program when Rob was teaching on it. And they were making exactly these points, you know, that the whole thing was, from their point of view, their understanding was transformative and um, that they learned from one another as much as they learned from uh, the academics on the course. And, of course, the academics on the course learned from the people who were on it as well. And that's exactly how it should be at university level. I'd like to echo that point very strongly. I think there's there's two other aspects to this, and it, it, it's the peculiarities of the way that, the course is taught at master's level and that is that it's it's all day on a saturday once a month roughly um so uh, and that enables one as a as a facilitator uh to flex a lot depending on how things are going interests of the people in the class uh the a level of enthusiasm for individual topics which sometimes varies inevitably uh, and, and not always in predictable ways, I might I might uh, add. Um, uh, but so it gives you a, a level of, of flexibility and an ability to, to respond to to the class as you're going through the day and really get really deep into questions. You know, you, you don't have to if you're if you've only got an hour on a, in a st- standard you know university timetable, uh, you've got fifty minutes. Uh, there are gonna, there are limits to how far you can let that. That, that those discussions run before you have to pull them back in because you've got to get on to the next point. But when you've got all day, you can let it run for an hour if you need to. There's plenty of time to catch up uh, a little bit later. And that, that makes a huge difference. And then the second aspect to, to it, and this works better some years than others, uh, no question, is the community aspect to it. You know, the people who come on the Masters generally, uh, in my experience, end up becoming friends. Uh, not all of them, but, but many of them. Certainly some of the classes that I taught at Birmingham sort of five or six years ago, they still go off to the battlefields every year together. Um, occasionally they're kind enough to invite me, uh, but generally I decide I don't want to spoil their fun. Um, uh, so they're, they're, so you have they have this, this immediate community, and then, of course, they're joining this broader community of which WFA is a really important part of people who have got so interested in, in the First World War that they have either they've got off their backside and gone down to the local village hall on a Tuesday night to uh, hear Bill uh, talking about the 941st Loamshires, or uh, they've come off to do a master's programme, or whatever it happens to be, however their, 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 their interest expresses themselves. So there is this sort of community aspect to it as well, I think, which is, is really powerful. Uh, and certainly something that we would like to, to revisit, something that John used to do um, uh, very well at Birmingham, which is to have these sort of standalone study days on a Saturday where anyone can come along and we'll just talk about some aspect of the First World War for a day uh, and you know, bring your own sandwiches and, um, and let's just talk about the First World War for a day. And, and, and I think that's, that, that, that was very good in its day. It got it rather fell victim, if I'm honest, to changing uh, working practices in academia. I think it'd be fair to say, uh, but um, 
It's something I would certainly like to try and re revive over the next couple of years if we can. And and just, sorry. sorry, 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 Alex. Yeah, I just want to pick up on uh, something that was uh, filtered through both uh, what Jonathan and John said, which is basically any good teaching at university now is what we call research led. And that's true of undergraduate and masters, but it's particularly true of our masters programs wherever you do a master's, but especially when you're embedded in the National Army Museum, we teach amongst the research, as, as Jonathan alluded to earlier. But it means that we are able to embrace, and as John said, learn from our students' interest. So we give them a global perspective, but we encourage them to go off and do individual research on their local area during the war and think about how the war was a, a catalyst for change in a, in a microcosm. So our home fronts module, every Saturday schooling in, includes a portion of time, which is the students coming back and reporting on how the war changed their local area, which is a really important part. So I guess the, the idea of the masters is we're creating new knowledge as we go, uh, much of which uh, will be new to the people teaching it as well, which is one of the, I guess, the, the privileges of teaching in a university. So gentlemen, if I want to apply for this um, course, when, where and when do I do it, saying that this is, is now May 2023? What are your deadlines? If you go to birmingham.ac.uk forward slash war, uh, there's a link there to our uh, postgraduate torch talk programs, and that will give you all the information about the course uh, and, and will lead you through to the application form that you have to fill out. Um, we generally start the academic year in the middle of September and I'm pretty prepared to accept applications up to about 48 hours before that so there's no there's no tearing hurry um uh, we will cut there will come a point but I'm pleased to say that we're not there yet uh, where we're going to have to start limiting numbers uh, in which case we might have to have an earlier deadline but but for the moment uh, we're happy to take people and, and and I should say if anyone has any questions that's listening to this uh, and would like to get in touch with me uh, please feel free to do so direct any questions you've got about any of the, of the course or anything. I should also say, in the spirit of fairness, that other courses are available. Uh, Spencer runs a brilliant one at Wolverhampton, which many of you will be aware of, uh, Spencer Jones. Uh, and there are 